folks we're back here with uh newly confirmed revenue commissioner bruce tangeman how you doing jeff pretty good you got you got 59 59 out of 59 that's and i'm i'm assuming if mr newman would have been here he would have voted for me too that's so that's pretty good we'll never know so you're you're locked in yes it's it's a done deal now so commissioner of revenue so that means you you uh you get the money yes from the people who pay us collector holder investor of the money and uh and we dole it out to the spenders of the money. You're kind of like the uh, the local IRS guy in some way, maybe. Uh, you don't yeah, want to. No, no, I'm not going to go that far. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your past before we go into your current role. You're all right. You you said earlier you're from Indiana. Yeah. So I grew up in Northwest Indiana, itty bitty town. I'm sure you saw the movie Hoosiers. Oh yeah. That that was my upbringing. Who was that? Uh, the head um, guy there, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman was the coach, yeah. yeah. But we, you know, I grew up playing in gyms just like that. I mean, itty bitty schools, and and we would play ginormous schools. And Gary, we'd play, you know, played in high school basketball stadiums that sat ten thousand people. So it was pretty cool. We um, never really went that far in the sectionals or regionals, but it was pretty interesting uh, playing against big schools like that. You're kind of tall. You'd probably be a good basketball player. I was player. the biggest kid in my school, so <laughs> I had to play basketball. So did you go to college in Indiana? Or? Yeah, I went to Indiana University. Um, let's see, graduated in 1985 from high school, went to IU, um, met my wife down there. I studied public finance, management, and accounting, or um, economics. And um, yeah, met my wife. She's from Juneau, Alaska, and that's how I ended up back here. So you met her in IU? Correct. And then she's from Juno. Right. And you said, I'm going, we're going to Juno. Well, yeah, well we had to, uh, um, I didn't have any debt when I graduated. I worked in a steel mill in the summertime and did you really put myself through school, but wow. Betty got her student loans from the state of Alaska. So we, our plan was in 1990, we got married in 90 and then 91, we planned to come back here and pay off first debt, school debt, and then leave a couple of years later. And that was, you know, because we used to have, didn't we? Years ago, didn't Alaska used to have that re- re- reimbursement forgiveness, plan. forgiveness? Yeah, it was a great plan. You would, uh, if you moved back here, and I think if you stayed here for five years, they'd forgive half your student loans. Did you have to work a certain? <clears throat> no, you or? just had to come back and live here. Um, and they did away with that program. The whole plan was to bring back college-educated kids. And not only did she come back, but she brought me with her. So it was a two for one. Look where you are now. Yeah. But yeah, it was a great plan that they did away with. So what'd you do (laughs) early on when, when did you get into the politics? Oh, it, it was, uh, probably halfway through. I, I actually, my first job in Juneau was, uh, the airport parking lot. I managed that. Did you really? Yeah. For a company, it was called APCOA. They were out of, uh, my boss was in Portland, but I was 20. Two, 23 years old running a small business basically you had like an econ degree and a what, what else finance finance yeah how'd so, you get that job just applied needed a job had to pay off my wife's student loans <laughs> wow how so yeah you? it was pretty cool we uh we had uh you know i had probably six or seven staff and and it was running a small business so it was very educational did you do that for a, for a while i did that for probably two or three years i think and then i went to work for the state my first job was with department of corrections and i was what was i i was an uh, accountant accounting 
tech or something like that. Counting tech. You weren't a guard. Range 14. No, no, no. <laughs> um, and I did that for a year, and then I started as a budget analyst for corrections. So that kind of put me on the path I on now. I was a budget analyst for corrections. And then I went to H&SS. I was a budget analyst there. What's H&SS for? Health and Social oh, Services. Okay. Um, I was there. They had a they had a party the year that they the budget went over a billion dollars. Wow! They had a party. I was disgusted by, by that, but you know they were proud of the fact that their budget their went budget over went over a billion, billion dollars. Yeah, <clears throat> it's wild. You know, I read this book, uh, Extreme Conditions. You know, John Stromeyer. He, he came no. here in the '90s. He was like a Pulitzer Prize winning guy, and uh-huh. he came to Alaska in the '90s and at UA, and he taught some stuff, and he wrote a book about like history of oil in Alaska. Oh. And uh, during the first lease sale, we got nine hundred million. Right. And that year, the budget was a hundred million. Yeah. The whole budget for the yeah. whole state. Yep. The entire state. Just wild. How the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, after um, H and SS, I went to um, ledge finance. I was a fiscal analyst at legislative finance, and I was there for about four sessions. And that then, was a nonpartisan. Yeah. Nonpartisan yeah. job. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I we uh, we'd been here for fourteen years or so, and Betty and I wanted to go someplace else. So we I took a job with the Alaska Railroad and moved to Anchorage, and was the corporate budget officer for them. Bill O'Leary was the CFO at the time, who's now the, he's the president. Of the yeah, I know. I remember hearing you worked at the railroad. Yeah, that's right. So I was uh, did the budget work, capital and operating budgets uh, there. And then I was only there for a couple of years, and then I uh, went to the private sector. I was a CFO for Doyon Utilities up in Fairbanks. So that was, um, it was a startup, basically. It started as an 8A contract um, that developed into a competitive bid contract, but Doyon Limited was a 50% partner, and then there was a utility out of um, Vancouver, um, B.C., um, called Corex was the other 50%, and they owned and operated utilities all over Canada. So that was a partnership, and we bought and operated all 12 utilities on Wainwright, Greeley, and Fort Rich. That's so gas, I'm, electric. Yeah, sewer, water, all of them. Um, 50-year contract, you know, five-plus billion dollars, but it was uh, the uh, Army was going through privatization for all their utilities, um, around the United States, and I think they're around the world as well now. But um, generally what would happen down south is, you know, in California, one of the bases, the local um, electric utility would buy the utility system and the local water utility would buy the water system. But in Alaska, they wanted to try something different, mainly because, you know, D.C. so far away. They wanted one company to take over everything. So it was um, – that's why, you know, on it was – August 1st of 2008, I remember, when we flipped the switch. So we went, you know, went from nothing to being, I think, the third largest utility in the state. So did a lot of, do you have a lot of expertise for all the different Oh, I didn't have any. I was just, but the people you have, I mean, that seems like oh, a lot of complicated. So, so what we did was <clears throat> we inherited the people that used to work for the Army that ran these utilities. We inherited, the, inherited them as employees of our corporation. So it was oh, okay. a smooth transition that way. But yeah, the army loved it because they would—they didn't have to go to the capital appropriation process anymore. They would just say, "Go build a Black Star generator over there," and we go build it for them. And then their operating budget would go up a little bit. So that was pretty cool. We we uh, got a lot accomplished there, and I think they. Uh, it seems like a job where every day something different 
happens. Well, yeah, my my first week, I got a call from I was in we were living in Fairbanks, and I got a call from the folks down at Fort Rich and Anchorage, and and they uh, they were gonna they were just the uh, Anchorage um, assembly was getting ready on Tuesday night. I started on a Monday. Tuesday night, they were going to enter into a sole source contract with MEA to um, build the landfill gas plant. So they were, you know, the they were collecting mm-hmm. gas from the landfill, and uh, they didn't have any generators or anything. It was just collection pipes at the time, but they wanted to turn that into energy. And so they, I got on a plane, flew down here, and Chris Birch, he always reminds me, Senator Birch, he was on the assembly at the time, and he remembers me coming in, but we... Uh, I basically, you know, put a halt to the sole source and just said, hey, let us bid on this thing. You got the army who wants this thing. They're desperate for green energy. And it worked out well because we, we got the contract. We built the. Uh, I bet MEA was like, damn. Yeah, they were that <laughs> close. Um, we almost got it. But the the Anchorage, you know, the municipality loved it because they knew they were going to they were going to get paid by the army for the next several decades. So it was a guaranteed revenue stream for them. But I was a project manager. I just I was the guy, you know, I, I started this thing. So they said, all right, you inherited it. You're the project manager now. So, so you just heard you heard about the bid or somebody? Yeah, the, the folks at Fort Rich called me and said they wanted to get in on it. Can you get down here and do something about it? So it worked out well. Um, so what was it like living in Fairbanks? I mean, I've been to Fairbanks many times, but it's so damn cold. I, I We liked it. Um, the first, it's nice in the summer. Yeah, we got there in August though, and it was that winter we had three year or three weeks of below fifty, I think. See, I moved to Alaska in '04, and I got here at the end of August. Uh-huh. And I always tell people if you're going to move here, move here in January. Yeah, <laughs> because you get here at the end of August, and you're like, "Wow, this is great." Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, and then a few months later, you know, it's like cold and snow for six months. It took some getting used to, but we enjoyed our time up there for sure. So then, kind of fast forward, at some point you became you were deputy commissioner. Yeah, revenue. so when I was in Fairbanks, um, I'd, I'd been friends with Brian Butcher for quite a while, and uh, he was up there on some business and took me out to lunch and uh, asked if I was you know interested in, in joining his team at Revenue. So, did you have any idea that was a job offer lunch? No, I didn't. I had no idea. Just thought we were having that, yeah friendly lunch. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the best ones when you yeah don't expect wasn't it. Surprise, right? Wasn't looking for a job. Wasn't looking to move on, but. Um, but yeah, we ended up moving back to Anchorage, or uh, yeah, to Anchorage, and I was his uh, deputy commissioner, and I oversaw the tax division. I was working on the um, oil tax structure. We were under Aces at the time. Governor Parnell had finished Palin's term, and was elected, and that's when Brian became commissioner, and then he hired me. So that was 2010. Uh, yeah, the election would have been November 2010. I started late December 2010. And you were were you with Revenue the whole all of Parnell's term? Yeah, pretty much. And uh, I left in May of 2014, so he had a few months left in his term. Um, but I left and went to work for Dan Fowski at AGDC Gasline. Oh, I love Dan. I love that his, guy. He was, was his uh, VP of Finance CFO. I got a story about him. We were. Uh, oh, I got a few stories. When, when I first that. ran for office back in, <laughs> in 2012, I had, like I just totally didn't know anything, and I like reached out to. I knew some people and had kind of been to some events and lunches and. He was kind of a name I knew and a guy thought I should talk to. And several of the people I reached out to, never they were like, no, we're, who are you? But Dan Fowski was like, yeah, I'll, I'll meet you at the Lucky Wishbone next week. At, oh, you yeah. Know. So I, I went surprising. with him and my friend Bryce, and we were, it was wintertime. And he was just answering questions and just telling us everything. And he was just a character, you know. Yeah. At one point he said, uh, I got I to gotta take a, I got to go, I'll be right back. 
and he just kind of got up abruptly and it was like really cold outside. And then we look outside and he's out there <laughs> he's smoking a smoke. cigarette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget that. But he was one of the people that, you know, when I reached out to him, he right away said, yeah, I'm happy to talk. And I know his son too, DJ. Oh yeah. Yeah. Dan's one, he was one of a kind. There's, there's, he's an Alaskan treasure. He's got a building named after him. I mean, that doesn't happen in the state very often. He was a so. guy that they'd, there was a joke that if something's, something's broken or put, put Dan Fowski in charge. Cause wasn't he, Oh, gas yeah. line and then the AHF. Well, yeah, he was running AHFC and ended up with the gas line. He ended up with a lot of things that, that they would just. And it wasn't, Dan, go build a gas line. It was, Dan, we're giving you money to analyze this, do some due diligence, see, see if there's anything there. And he was very good at doing that. Yeah, he was. Put, putting a small team together to start doing that work. and He was one of a kind. So you worked with him for. Yeah, I was there for. Um, well, he was let go by Walker in 20. 20- 16 maybe no 2015 because I, I was there through august of 2016 so i was i was there for a couple of years and then you went to work you went to work for senator pete kelly right yeah yeah well between that time um, my wife retired as a probation officer after 20 years so she retired in june of 16 um i resigned from agdc in 20 august of 2016 and we traveled around and goofed off for three or four months oh, where'd you guys out of, out of country no, we uh we were pretending like we were retired. She was retired. I I knew I had to go back and get a job eventually, but we uh we'd never driven through Canada. So oh, that's we, a fun drive. So we packed up our car and we drove down. We stopped in um you know, Whistler, stayed there for a week, went to Vancouver. Love, Vancouver's awesome. Love that city. Um stayed there for mm-hmm. a week. Ended up in Seattle. Um had some friends there, you know, stayed with them for a couple of days. Left our car there, got on a plane. Flew to the East Coast into Boston. Um, had never been north of there, so we and it was August, September. No, it was September when we were traveling. So we ended up there and you know see the colors, and so we rented a car in Boston. And it was you'll appreciate this story. You know when you rent a car and you're walking out and you see the line of you know the Chargers uh-huh. and Challengers, and you always say, "Hey, how about an upgrade?" Yeah, you know, jokingly. Well, this time I said it to, and it was a. 20 year old kid that was taking us out and we flew a red eye and they said hey how much can we get that challenger and he said yeah why not oh nice we got to upgrade to it and drove for we put ten thousand miles on that car drove around up into um new york state went to niagara falls had some friends in ohio we drove and saw drove down and saw some friends ended up in um where did south carolina Oh, that's the whole, you did the whole tour. Oh, yeah, all the way up. I was back in New Mexico once visiting my parents, and that's where I'm from originally, and I went, I had like a four-door, you know, standard car rental or whatever from the the agency, and I went to pick it up, and they said, sorry, the car is not available, so we'll have to give you this, and it was like a supercharged, like, Mustang. (laughs) I was like, great. It was like a V8 Mustang. (laughs) said, awesome. Never hurts to ask. When I moved to Alaska from New Mexico, we got to Canada in two days. And this is 2004, so it's before, like, Google Maps. Yeah. So we're thinking, like, oh, we're almost there. You know, we're pretty. <laughs> and then, like, our third full day of driving through Canada. Yeah. I'm thinking, like, wow. Hey, this you're is, halfway there. This is really far. <laughs> um, so now you're now you're commissioner. Right. And of uh, revenue. So let's talk a little bit about what I've always said is kind of, I think, one of our biggest problems is, is we tend to change our tax system every, oil mm-hmm. tax system every seven or eight years. Yeah. We've had different, you know, they go up, they go down, and there was ACEs, which I guess was an unforeseen uh, oil price 
issue where the price went to 150 almost, didn't it? It was above 140 bucks for a week. So it was it was when in the 120s, 130s for a significant amount of time there. And before yeah. that, it was it the uh, was it the Elf or the PP? PPT was in place for a year maybe, and then they switched it to Aces. So PPT was we stepped away from Elf, which was a gross tax system. PPT was our first time into a net tax system. Um, that was put in place and didn't bring in as much revenue as they thought it was going to bring in. So then they brought aces to the table and the aces that Sarah Palin brought to the table had, it was progressive, but it wasn't too radical. And again, this was all conceptual. We, we'd never seen something like this. Nothing had ever certainly been in place in Alaska. So it was all conceptual. So hers came out of the gate as something, it seemed reasonable, but it was progressive. And then within the last 36 hours of session that year, that's when aces went from, you know, reasonable to just overly aggressive and progressive. And it's, you know, that those few years that we were under aces was an incredibly, it was a missed opportunity for the state. And a lot of people just see the revenue that we brought in and it, we brought in a lot of revenue because it was a hundred plus dollars a barrel. Mm -hmm. But if you peel back some of the onion on that, we are, we had a missed opportunity and we'll never recover from it because what we saw was part of aces included a 20% capital credit that you spend a buck up on the North slope. You buy a truck, All right? State's going to give you 20 cents on the dollar. No questions asked. As long as it qualified as a capital expenditure, according to the IRS. So a lot of spending uh -huh. took place and, and you could, you can see that spending was high, but it was flat for about three years in a row. And $600 billion was spent worldwide. I mean, you look at the charts worldwide, and it was almost a vertical line year over year. The, the spending was so tremendous at those oil prices, and it was flat here. And not only was it flat, but it wasn't being invested. It was being spent. So, yeah, we brought in a lot of revenue, but we also saw a 6 to 8% decline during that timeline. So if we would have had something that was more competitive that would have inspired investment – I think we would have seen significant production increases, but and there was those exploration is. credits too, which I think yeah, there were a lot of credits being being attempted, um, and I never, you know, I never hammer on people that were debating aces and put aces in place because again, it was all theoretical, and the concept was it's going to be a it's going to be a really high tax rate, but if you get on the hamster wheel. You can and the money that you're making, if you're reinvesting the money, then you'll see that benefit through these credits and the QCE, you know, the capital well, credits. But the problem was we we'd never seen a hundred dollars elsewhere around the world or in any place else. So people never the companies didn't get on the hamster wheel. They said, Hey, interesting tax system, really aggressive, really progressive, punishes us. We're gonna go take our dollars and go to North Dakota because we heard that shale play down there might be something or we're going to go to the Permian Basin or even Pennsylvania, California passed us during those years. So the, the concept was in, interesting when Palin introduced it, the progressivity got super aggressive and the investment never got on the hamster wheel. And that, and that's where we, our missed opportunity was. Well, I think a lot of it had to do with, um, I don't know if you read Amanda Coyne and Tony Hopfinger's book, crude awakening. Mm -mm. It's a really good book it's all about that whole time, but there was the whole Vico thing and there was all the political oh, yeah. stuff happening. And there was so much, I think, she had so much political capital to do this stuff at the time, and I think that was played a big part in, in yeah high approval ratings mm -hmm. and everything else. Um, 
but yeah, it, it you know it, it it we're now in a situation where where we can look back and see what happened. You know, we saw significant declines at triple digit prices. Um, SB twenty one is everybody's comparing the two now, and we saw increasing production at fifty dollars a barrel. So that alone, it, it, you don't really have to go too much deeper than that. And I know we're Alaska; we talk about taxes. It's it's a sport for us. But if you just look compare the two structures under what the prices were and what the results were, it's it's significant what a stable, predictable tax regime will do for a state. Isn't it ironically under SB twenty one when the price of oil crashed? Wasn't there more revenue? I understand. Yeah, we state, than under if Aces was was still around. Yeah, we brought we would bring in more revenue under that tax structure for sure. Mm-hmm. So the other one, I you know, I I used to work in the, not very long for about over a little over a year working in the oil industry. But before that, I worked in, in the IT industry and I worked mm-hmm. with a lot of oil and gas uh, companies for many years. And the one thing they always told me was um, pretty much across the board, they don't mind paying more like in Norway, right? But they just as long as it's consistent, they know what they're going to get. Right. I mean, Norway's got a higher, it's more of a partnership in some way system with, with um, Statoil. Right. But but they don't, it doesn't change. Well, that was the other huge difference. ACEs, the tax, your tax was di- would be different tomorrow than it is today. Guaranteed. Because as the price of, if the price of oil went up a buck, your tax rate went up by 0.4%. So your tax rate changed literally every day. SB21, um, the, you know, some folks will complain about it because of how high the, the base rate is and there's there's parts of it, but they can calculate it. They can say if if SB21 stays in place for the next decade, we can forecast what we think oil prices will be and we can plan for the next decade. We know exactly what our taxes are going to be for 10 years. That compared to we don't know what our taxes are going to be tomorrow. That's what keeps, you know, and, and it's interesting, Jeff, because when a when we look into, I, I just started looking into our competitors, what they're doing. You know, Texas, California, Wyoming, North Dakota, Pennsylvania. Um, I think between California, Texas, North Dakota, Wyoming, they haven't made a tax change since 2000. Or we went back to 2000 to see how often they were changing their taxes. Do they change their taxes every other year like we do? No, they haven't made significant. Some of them haven't even touched it since 2000 and i understand uh, i looked at this years ago but if it's not changed i'm sure it's the same with north dakota i think it's like above 50 below 50 dollars a barrel and above 50 there's one rate for below 50 and one rate for above. it's pretty simple right so it, it was funny when when i was deputy brian and i went down to uh north dakota to meet with our counterparts because because shale was kind of new there at least the development they knew it was there fracking's been around for decades but the development was now becoming interesting because prices were now to a point where you could develop it and back then they thought 70 bucks was a break even well now it's down into the 30s i think where it's break even for them but we went down there to check that out and um you know being the tax guy i i wanted to meet you know i've got a floor of tax people in anchorage and i've got a floor of tax people here several so i uh I wanted to meet the tax team. You know, I wanted to meet their 60, 80 people that work for tax. And that was probably just a yeah, few, few it was, people. And it, the guy literally said, well, there's Bob over there. And there might have been a couple other people, but it was literally a handful of people. Because it was. If it's above a certain oil price, they pay X. And if it's below a certain oil price, they pay Y. And it's that simple. And that's that's what the the one good thing that came out of ACES is that Alaska realized we had to compete. That we just couldn't decide you know stick a finger in the wind and decide what we're going to do with well taxes. i think part, i mean 
as far as I understand, a big part of Aces was they wanted to get other these smaller companies up here that you know right. could, couldn't compete uh, without big incentives, exploration credits. So you had, and even Repsol and ENI, I mean, those aren't small companies. No. Those are actually large. Right. St- you know, Billcorp is kind of on the on the line, but it, you know, it was interesting that it was it, it the desire to break up the monopoly, as they called it. You know, we got to break up that big three. They can't run the North Slope. So they open the doors. They they figure we're going to throw as many tax credits and and figure out what we can do when we're flush. And the other thing we should have learned, hopefully we did, was not everybody can afford to do business in Alaska. You got to have a pretty healthy balance sheet to, I mean, be able I think to afford Rep, to do it. I think Repsol and E and I, you know, they're, Repsol had that big fine, but yeah. now they're gone because they had the whole problem with Argentina. They had the, the YPF got nationalized, and then mm-hmm. that talisman deal right. right before the price of oil crashed. But E and I's up there doing, doing yeah, and that. they're a big company. But uh, a ton of those companies, small companies, couldn't afford. I mean, they were, I think, just speculating. Yeah, if they would have found something, they wouldn't. I mean, they would have sold they it would off. Flip it, yeah. And they were getting, I don't, I don't know what the top end was. They were getting five or six, fifty, fifty or sixty cents on the dollar. But the, but for ex, for the credit for ex, yeah. exploring. So we did find, you know, um, uh, oil searches up there now. Hillcorp, obviously, so. There's, you know, a handful of, of players that have the balance sheet and the expertise that can produce up there. So we, at least we got that. But again, it was a lot of learning that we did coming out of ACES. Um, and, you know, I look at it deeper than just we had a lot of money. I look at it with the missed opportunity again. But. So let's talk a bit about there's around this building and, and frankly around the state, there's this talk of, of the uh, 1.6 or $1.9 billion in mm-hmm. credits that are that are oh being, it's uh, about 1.2 is that calculation yeah so that's oh, and i think that goes back to the exploration credits that were talked about for a long time so now they're they're kind of saying well there's this 1.2 billion dollars in, in credits but but the reality is those aren't actual we're not paying out cash yeah they never it's, should have been called credits they were misnamed coming out of the gate they're deduct they're net deductions it's, right yeah it's a deduction it's a calculation it's part of a net tax system the people that are behind that that are really pushing that i mean they're pretty effective because i i get emails all the time and mm-hmm. i talk to people and and they're so angry that we're we're giving the oil companies one one billion or 1.6 billion dollars a year and uh, i tell them well, we're not give we're, it's a deduction right but but it's just seemed seemed to have kind of gotten out of control and that's the, kind of the narrative almost and right so the debate how that came about was um we did have that 20 percent capital credit under aces where it was just if you spend a buck we'll give you 20 cents off your tax liability. Um, that was anything, not, not anything. Just and and look, we were still oil. seven, eight percent decline. We were still all this money that was being spent and we were still seeing decline. So we knew that we'd somehow had to get if we were going to participate as a state investing, we had to get that off the front end and put it on the back end somehow. So that's where that sliding scale came into play. It's based on production. It's based on a barrel of oil, not the dollar you invest up front. So it and it's there. So now the company has to invest the money to get that return on the back end. And again, it's part of the calculation. It's Alaska is a very expensive place to do business. If you, you know, some people just want to say we're going to, they just want to cancel that billion dollars. That's like a 300% tax increase. If you want to go back to six to 8% decline again, you know, put us 300% tax increase in it. So can you kind of briefly explain how the, I know there's a, I forget what the percentage is, but there's a percentage and then a certain price. A there's dollar, a dollar, yeah. There's a, there's an alternative minimum tax at some price. Um, yeah, there's 
I don't want to get into the calculations because doing math on the on the radio is boring. But it, it's a net tax system. The sliding scale is um, an eight dollar credit when prices are low. I think it's at sixty bucks, and when prices are high, I think up to one hundred forty. Then it goes away. Okay. So it's it's meant to. Um, the more you invest, the more you produce, the more you realize through this credit. And then there's also, in addition to the tax, there's the, the royalty. Yeah, so royalty is what the state receives. And that's, so, you know, the company produces 100 barrels, 12 barrels of it are the states. You know, generally it's a 12, 12.5% royalty rate. So the state gets 12 barrels off the top. Before any other, we actually get the physical barrels. We could, we can. Or do get we take it, in payment royalty? That's royalty in kind, or you can get it royalty in value. Um, I think we usually take it in royalty and value, but that's a DNR decision. But um, and then they, the companies just sell it. And- yeah, so we get a hundred percent of the value of that. But then the then the calculation starts. Then you've got the gross value at the point of production. You got transportation. Yeah, what, yeah, what point do they? Alaska sale, the ANS price, or is no? It- it's ANS. Okay. So it's it's sale to the um, either you know when it's shipped to Anacortes or to um, California, but then you're, you're deducting transportation costs, you're deducting lease expenditures. Have they ever looked into capital. doing like? Have they ever looked into like doing selling it in futures or taking like the money hedging? Off? Yeah, hedging it. Yeah, we're we're actually studying that right now, um, just to see if there's an opportunity. Um, you know, people get a little nervous about you know that but it there is an opportunity i think so we're looking into it to see if there's if uh, even through a pilot project i just thought about that do. so yeah no hedging is yeah absolutely that's i won't take credit for it you you you, <laughs> you cushion yourself against downside when you do that well, that's what the aviation but you give up a little bit of the upside that's too. what the aviation companies do with yeah the price of, you know they but you know everybody is assuming that the price of oil are the guardrails are pretty tight right now that you know it, it's probably not going to go below 40 and it's probably not going to be above 80 for very long 90 nobody's even talking about 90 so when you're in a, a more restricted guidelines like that i think hedging is um the risk of hedging is a little quite a bit less yeah it's it's funny i was um <clears throat> watching a, a bill walker interview back in november after he was elected and that's when the price started going down. And it was about seventy, and he was saying, "Yeah, we're at, we're we're at seventy. It's uh, hopefully it goes back. You know, it's we're, we're to deal with that. You know, hopefully we're it doesn't go much lower. Sixty, yeah. So, and now, now it's like seventy is like the best thing. Oh yeah, it's really funny how the yeah. perspective changes. Yeah, absolutely. So the session's almost over now. I mean, maybe another month, and mm-hmm. there's not a ton of talk about oil taxes, but it, it is being discussed by some people. But yeah, is there any? legislation right now there, there's really nothing you know I've there's there's a couple bills out there um they're not getting any traction i think the you know the governor has been pretty loud and clear that he, you know we're, we're going to talk about the expenditure side of the house this year and i think the legislators realize that putting a lot of effort into that side of talking about revenues is pointless this year um because it is the, the you know this governor has a very firm stance that you can't talk about expenditures and also have revenue options on the table because this, here's an example, you know, what did the university get cut? 150 million, something like that. 180 million. Yeah. It's 140. I think something. Um, so let's say it's 140 million and somebody introduces a new tax, some sort of head tax or something that happens to bring in 140 million. Well, the university is going to shoot their hand up in the air and say, dibs, we get that 140 million, put it back in our budget. Well, the problem is four other places in the state 
budget are going to also throw up their hands. So you're never going to have an honest discussion on what the size of government should be if there's revenue that's being introduced and put on the table. So that's why um, Governor Dunleavy wants to, and none of us are burying our heads in the sand. We know people want to talk about revenue, obviously. But this year it's been nice just to focus on the expenditure side. And, and Jeff, the conversations we've had this year, I, I don't recall ever seeing in the state where it's starting with the revenue side, which is what the governor told Donna Ardwin and I is, Bruce, figure out how much revenue we have then tell Donna and she can start building the budget around that. And we've never had that discussion. They've always been on parallel paths, but they don't talk to each other until you get to November or December. And it's okay, here's the budget. And okay, how much revenue do we have? Oops, we got a deficit. Now what are we going to do about it? Well, this governor said the conversation is going to be, here's how much revenue we have to spend. And that's how much we're going to spend. So it's, generated a different discussion because now with you know it was 3.2 or whatever the number was coming out of the gate and it was the discussion was well there's 1.6 billion that's not being funded anymore and they're scrapping to justify why that why they need money to keep that program in existence and it's a different discussion now it's a matter of okay if you want to add 200 million back to the budget how are you going to pay for it so I think it's been a very healthy discussion. Look at the turnout we had at some of these. Things. I was going to say you, you went on that phenomenal. Bu- you went on that budget roadshow, right? Mm-hmm. How many places did you go? You went to oh gosh, Fairbanks, Nome, Fairbanks, Nome, Matsu, Anchorage, and Kenai. I yeah. watched several of. I, it seemed to be more or less kind of the same kind of you guys talked about the revenues and the and the yeah the budget and uh, it was you Don Arduin, the governor Jeremy Price. Um, the AG, Kevin Clarkson. Kevin Clarkson, and then mm-hmm. a few other people were there. Yeah, so. and it's, you know, if you if you see it three times, it's the same presentation. The AFP guy was there, too, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it, it's the same story. We had a 15-slide presentation or so. So, and, so I mean, I know, I know there's not a big push for new revenue um, from certain governor and certain legislators, but under the budget, I mean, they do attempt to shift revenue well, yeah. I guess property taxes from the North Slope and Fairbanks and Valdez. Fish and, taxes. Well, you know, fisheries landing tax. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, that kind of tells me that you can cut the budget so much, but you can't really actually cut it, $1.6 billion. You have to shift. And also there's the uh, school bond debt reimbursement. Um, so in some ways that's kind of a sh- almost a sh- revenue shift, right? Yeah. From the local level to the state. Um, in part, yeah. But part of it is, um, you know, the petroleum property tax, the fish tax, those have been collected in certain regions of the state and spent in certain regions. And the governor, again, it went back to the revenue. He saw that that was a revenue source, put it on the table for the state, put, bring all these different sources and put them on the table for the state. And then we need to decide how we're going to distribute that for everyone's benefit. So it's more a matter of, of the fact that these areas were, um, bringing in those revenues, um, under that system and, and they weren't being touched at all. It's, it is a drastic change when the governor says, okay, we're now going to bring all the revenue back to the state. Table. Yeah. I mean, before that, honestly, I didn't and, know how much the North slope or the city of LD, I didn't, the fisheries landing tax. I didn't really, yeah, I wasn't even aware of it. Exactly. Nobody was, unless you were in those communities or, or being affected. So with, with your role in revenue, I mean, the bulk of the money comes from oil and, ga- oil and gas, but right. now, actually now we have the, the POMV. Yep. So you, about the, 3 billion money from the permanent fund uh, mm-hmm. reserve. But what, I mean, what else do you guys deal with corporate taxes and we've got 
I think there's 22 total taxes in the state, about 20 to 22. So there's gam, you know, gaming. There's a bunch of different things. Pull tabs generated small amount. I was of tax at, I was revenue. at, I was at the um, Triangle a few weeks ago, and I bought like 10, 20 bucks in pull tabs, and I didn't win anything. This girl buys five bucks, five hundred, same bin. You, I, I know you've been to Vegas, Jeff. Oh, I've been to Vegas. Yeah. What do you do when you're? After, she knows I've been to. If if you're playing a <laughs> slot machine for an hour, what's the first? If you're going to stop playing, what do you do? You get as far away from that slot machine as possible. Yeah. Because you know the next person's going to sit down and put a I mean, quarter in. I mean, five hundred. I was not very <laughs> happy about that, but yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's you know when when the state's been operating on a revenue stream that produces ninety plus percent. Now it's significantly less, but. You know, we do have a number of other taxes, but they're very, very small. Yeah, when you add them all up combined, they're just yeah dropping the bucket. Compared and that, to- you know, that's the other thing about the revenue discussions that have been taking place. You know, we we had um, half dozen or so different t- types of income taxes and had taxes introduced over the last couple of years under the previous administration, both by the governor and the legislature. But it was always they were interesting conversations because you know the, governor walker introduced the tax and it's going to bring in 700 million and our our, conver- our questions were why 700 million well because x times y equals 700 million no we know how it's calculated but why 700 million the deficit's 2 billion what's your goal here cuz right now under this governor it's okay if you want to add 200 million you know you need to generate 200 million but under the previous administration, they were just throwing things out there, hopefully hoping something was going to take hold. And it's it's a much healthier conversation now. Because, I guess the one, the one thing they got was the, the POMV. Right. The, the uh, what is it, 5.25%. 5.25%. And, and that's great. Everybody's been waiting for us to do that. We're finally doing it in a reasonable manner. Um, but I think the tax situation at least shed some light on the fact that you can't put an income tax on a on a population this small to fill this gap. It's impossible. So uh, last question: We're we're getting we're almost forty minutes, but I right. told you if, if it's interesting, yeah. I go longer than thirty. <laughs> um, so if, if some if there was to be an income tax re-implemented, because we used to have one our estate sure. sales tax. Let's say if it were to pass this, for example, this session, how long would it take to actually implement it and then start collecting it it wouldn't it wouldn't be immediate right it would take a while no i think um i think it'd be a challenge to have it up and running because because under the previous administration they were estimating 60 plus employees to stand up the you know we called it the alaska irs but the tax you know income tax division so you're going to have to hire a lot of people obviously you want it to start january 1st of any year because it needs to be for a calendar Mm -hmm. just like the feds um so, you know, finishing session in, in May or June of a year and then being ready for that following January, I think, would be a challenge. Then you wouldn't even get it until the next the year following after. year. Yeah, the the following April. So when people are actually paying their taxes. So but it, it would be deducted probably from from their Federal. paychecks and, you know, that type of thing. So it'd, it'd be steady at least. But, yeah, it, it it will be a big lift. But the important part is. Even after all those things were thrown against the wall in the last couple of years, um, it shone, it shined a light on the fact that you're not going to be able to put an income tax in place that's going to fund this government or fill that gap. Yeah. We just don't have a big enough base of you know of workers. It's just you know seven hundred thousand people to three hundred thousand might actually pay it, 
Um, and it'd be, you know, is it, if it's progressive, it's even going to be a much smaller number. So it's, it's generated good conversations that the state's going to have to take on before we implement anything like that. All right, Commissioner Tangeman, I really appreciate your time. Newly confirmed, fifty-nine, yeah, to zero, una- yeah. unanimous, unanimous. That's a that's a mandate. Never thought I'd see that, but well, congratulations I'm, I'm on happy. that. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate the time, and maybe we'll do this again in the future. Absolutely. Thanks again, again thanks. guys. If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast with me, let me know. Thanks. Landline.